You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads are hidden in the world of intelligence gathering? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the author of Red London, Alma Katsu. She has had a 35-year career, I'm very impressed, as a senior intelligence analyst for several U.S. agencies, including the CIA and the NSA. This is her eighth book. Her previous book, Red Widow, featured CIA Lindsay Duncan. S.A. Cosby, author of Razorblade Tears, said, Wicked Sharp, Equal Parts, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and Killing Eve. And Alma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Here's what I'd like to do, if you don't mind. This is your eighth book, is that correct? I think. I'm starting to lose count. All right. Well, my information says the eighth book, so congratulations. You can call 910 or whatever. And this, you have two different genres. One is the horror, supernatural, and also now these espionage books. My guess is you have a loyal following based on all the books that you've written. I think it's fascinating for people that read the books to learn more about you. Tell us about where you were born and how you grew up, because that's kind of kind of filling the things. People want to know what book is coming up, but I think it's edifying if they learn more about you, because that's the genesis of this all. Well, you know, it, I, I have found that people are interested just because the fact that I write these books that are, uh, you know, more in the historical horror and fantasy genre and spy novels. And when they find out that I actually worked in intelligence for a long time, they want to know how how this split happened in my life, you know, because it doesn't really track one with the other. But, you know, when I started, um, it was way long ago, pre-internet. And, um, it, you know, I grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts, flanked by a lot of very wealthy, well-known historical towns. And, um, you know, I was one of those kids, uh, I think a lot of writers are very um, introverted and we tend to be loners who live in libraries and just read books all the time. That was me. And so, you know, when you do that, when you adore books, I think it's very natural to want to be a writer, to try to recreate this thing that has given you so much pleasure and keeps you company. So I wanted to be a, a novelist, but in those days, pre-internet days, it, it wasn't easy to figure out what the path was to become a novelist. Um, so I did the thing that I thought would be, you know, where I could see people actually were making a livelihood with words, and that was newspaper reporting. So I started when I was still in high school, actually, and I was a reporter through college, and I was sort of on that track when... Uh, I decided to take the test for NSA um, uh, just for curiosity, just because when I was a kid, you know, everyone told you, how can you, adults would always say to you, you know, how can you write a novel? You haven't lived yet. You don't know what living is. You got to go out and collect a few experiences. So I figured testing for NSA because I'd heard all these wacky, wacky stories about what it would entail and what it would be like to work for them. 
I thought that taking the test would be one of those things, right? One of those experiences that maybe I could write about down the road, never guessing that I would actually go and work there. But once I started, it, it was a fascinating career. And so I ended up spending, you know, most of my adult life there. So let me ask you a question and I'll tell you where I'm going after we hear your answer. When did you start writing Red London? Red London, which is the second book in the series, um, I started writing it shortly after I had finished Red Widow. I'm very nervous. <laughs> so I try to get under contract as soon as possible with my publisher. You know, some writers really like to let a book sort of, you know, marinate in yes. their mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they don't care if they don't have a contract. But um, I've always been very nervous about that, I guess, because I work for the government, you know, which is pretty much a guaranteed job. Right. So this is this whole thing where you're basically a freelancer is very alien to me. So um, uh, they I knew they wanted a second book. I wanted a second book. I kind of figured that the second book would pick up right where Red Widow left off. But they actually wanted something that was a bit more of a standalone. So um it took a couple tries. I pitched a couple different ideas to them. And then when I came up with the idea that's central to Red London, they were like, bingo, that's the one. So here's where I'm going with this. Because I wonder, I imagine you started writing the book before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Did yes. you have to change the book? Because yes. the events on the ground changed. Now, I, I don't know what the original intent was. I think I got an idea. But my guess is you had to make some adjustments. Yes, several times, as a matter of fact. So the book was finished before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, 2022. And, um, you know, it's funny because my day job, I'm a futurist. I'm, I'm a futurist in emerging technologies. But I'm constantly looking, you know, used to doing future projections. So... I, I kind of had to kick myself. Like, why did I think that I could just assume, you know, Putin would stay on his aggressive path, but that he wouldn't, you know, attack another country or something right, like right. that? I didn't think imaginatively enough. And almost every intelligence, I mean, um, writer of spy novels I knew did the same thing. We were all looking at Russian, but we, we only looked like a couple inches beyond our nose, right? So everyone was bitching and complaining. Everyone had to rewrite their novels. So I rewrote it once, but then the, the facts on the ground moved so fast that, you know, the rewrites were outmoded almost before I had sent them in to my editor. And so after this happened a couple times, I realized um, this is not going to work. I'm going to have to get way out in front of what's happening in Ukraine. And it was impossible predict, to predict because it was moving so fast. Right. And uh, But I, I came up with something that I think works and will make the general public, if they're at all interested in Russia and Ukraine, I think it'll really be an interesting thing for them to wrap their heads around. So let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. We're in discussion with Alma Katsu, whose new book is called Red London. So I'm going to connect the dots. I read the book. You had this terrific character, Lindsay Duncan. She's in book one. She's in book two. Here's where I'm going. In terms of, well, I don't want to give away the ending, but there's something there. It's going to have, have great anticipation for the fans of your books. Do, based on Red Widow, Red London, 
do all roads lead to Red Square in Moscow? Wow. See, this is, again, me not looking <laughs> far enough ahead. You know, that's a great idea. I think I'll keep that in mind for the end. But, you know, uh, being a genre writer, publishers like you, as long as the, the series is popular, they want you to keep writing. So I can't think about wrapping it up too soon. Um, right now, the idea is kind of that the books will jump around the world. Okay. So the next one might be Red Paris, for instance, or Red Amsterdam or, you know, Red some other places. But that's a great idea. I'm going to save Red Square for the last book. So let me share a story with you because I've done over a dozen interviews with Nelson DeMille. And Nelson wrote a book featuring John Corey. He was only supposed to use John Corey once. He didn't want to do reoccurring characters. He wanted to do standalones. I imagine his agent and his publisher got back to him. Your audience loves John Corey. You have to continue writing about him. So are you getting feedback from your audience about Lindsay Duncan? And they're, they're making you or your publisher making you continue to write about her. Um, well, yes. So that's, this is the conundrum for me because I write in two genres that are pretty separate. You know, they're not even like science fiction and fantasy. They're not anywhere near each other. And it's hard. Writer, readers, you know, I've got great readers, but you can't expect someone that loves horror. And I, I should say that my horror is not like splatter punk or anything crazy like right, that. It's right. very literary with like this horror element in it. But you can't expect someone who likes something like that to necessarily like a spy novel, for instance. I certainly do have some people who read both, but I think the majority don't read both sets of my books. And that makes it really hard for the publisher to know how to market the book. For instance, right now we alternate. One year it's a spy novel, one year it's a horror novel. And you know, in the business, you know, it comes out first in a hardcover, then it comes out in a trade paperback. One of the things they love to do also with eBooks is to take the first chapter of the new book yes. and put it in the back of the trade paperback. Yeah. Well, if it's a horror novel, it seems kind of funny to put a chapter of a spy novel at the back of the book. So it's these things that are kind of invisible, I think, to the reading audience that just make it hard to keep, um, you know, two series going. Now, having said that, I do think the reaction to Lindsay has been great. It's hard to have um, a female-centric spy novel. There are just not a lot of them. And the ones that are out there, I have to say, don't get a lot of support. Hopefully, it's going to change a little bit. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to write a, a spy novel after spending my career in it because I wanted to see the women better represented. So I think Lindsay's starting to catch on. I will say that the television industry is very interested right. in her right. because they think that she really scratches an itch for, um, you know, a big percentage of their audience. So you mentioned that television industry. So here's the next question I have for you. Are there any television programs movies or books that accurately reflect the world that you existed in as an analyst? You know, it's a really hard thing to do. And, and I've thought about this a lot, mostly because we are, you know, um, we are breaking into TV with the series and it's a question that comes up a lot. And I can understand, I mean, the short answer is very few and we can talk about a few of them. But the reason is this, because over the decades, 
audiences have been conditioned to expect certain things when we're talking the espionage espionage genre. Right. You know, particularly if you look at James Bond, right? It, they're expecting it to be action-packed. They're expecting, you know, the lone hero to rush in and save the day, even if, like in Mission Impossible, he has a team of specialists who enable him. At the end of the day, right, it's up to Ethan, I forget his last name, to, you know, do the heroic thing and save everybody. And that's kind of the opposite of how actual intelligence works and this whole running and shooting and blowing things up that actually happens a lot less than people might imagine the war on terrorism kind of changed things for a while but we're shifting back to the old cold war kind of great powers era and you're going to see a lot less of this people blowing up squares and that sort of thing so so anyway it's um it, it makes it hard to try to write a realistic story because audiences have been conditioned to expect these big over-the-top scenes and crazy stuff. So I have been sort of trying to to square that circle in the writing. I expect the TV show will probably be a little bit more traditional. So I'm going to challenge you. I got to watch Slow Horses. Yeah. It's great TV, Gary Oldman. They're, yeah, they're, the, they're the outcasts in MI6. But it's a great story, and it's not shoot 'em up, car chases, and everything else. I think it's great TV, but I also think it gives us maybe a more realistic world of what goes on. There's a lot of drudgery there. <laughs> I think they put as much drudgery as possible into those scenes, you know, that you can get away with on TV. Um, I really enjoy the series. I have to say, I haven't read Mick Heron's books. I. Right. I started one, um, one of the series, but I, I did get through the TV series. And I think it's great, first of all, because every agency in America that I'm familiar with, there is a group of misfits. They shove you out, you know, someplace if you've fallen on somebody's blank list, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, you we get know what you mean. Out. I'm sorry. I know we know what you mean with the blank part. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, you kind of get put out to pasture, and sometimes there's no no redemption. There's no way back from that. So I immediately identified, you know, felt sympathy for the, all those poor characters. The first season was very good. I just wrapped up the second season. It was a little a little more over the top, but it's really hard to do in a TV series. You got to keep sort of bettering yourself. It's it's really challenging. So I'm going to continue with that in terms of the art and craft of storytelling. In season two, there's a character that's killed off. Do you ever wrestle with having to kill off a favorite character? And part two, I learned this from a writer named S.J. Roseanne. She started writing her books and realized she was falling in love with her tertiary character that she, she created. And she continued building up that character in her books, what she thought is great insights. So do you ever wrestle with that? Um, I love this character, but he or she has to go. It, it happened in earlier seasons, uh, earlier, I'm sorry, earlier books that I had written in the fantasy series. There were people that I got rid of. I was a lot more heartless than I guess. In the historical fiction, because they're centered on real events, right. 
Um, I often have the deaths, the characters who have to die are already prescribed for me. So I know, you know, I've got to think about, and, and for instance, in The Hunger, which was the first historical horror, and it's based on the story of the Donner Party, the infamous Donner Party. Right. So many weird, weird deaths happened in that. It was great <laughs> for me as a writer, not so much for the people who died, but it just made great storytelling. So I think... But historical horrors maybe made me a little lazy. Plus, in the intelligence business, putting aside the war on terror, you know, you, you don't often get people being knocked off left and right wholesale. Yeah. You know, the clandestine service is really about secrets and, you know, manipulating things in the shadows. And unfortunately, sometimes people do die. But I guess because I still kind of you close to the truth. It doesn't occur to me as much to bump people off. I did think that was um, very interesting and a little shocking and about the character that died in the se second season of Slow Horses. Yeah, I really liked him. What a shame. They're brave, though. Yeah, very much so. So there's another connection here. I did an interview with Liz Wheel, who wrote a book about Robert Hansen, oh, okay. the, mole, the mole in the FBI. And she blurred both of the the her book and your book. Now I'm talking about Valerie Plain, who was oh. an undercover, undercover analyst. And here's what I picked out of that. There's something called the wilderness of mirrors. What is that? Can you explain? Well, I mean, I think people associate it with the clandestine service a little bit more. I mean, for one thing, in intelligence, you're never told the whole story. You have your part to play. There's something called need to know where you're not going to be told another piece if you don't need for, for you to do your mission. You don't need to be told it. So it's often things like the identity of other foreign assets that, for instance, CIA may have in the field. They're not going to share the true identity with just anybody, right? So you may not know other pieces of the puzzle. And so you're really trying to do your best knowing, trying to remember that at any given time, there might be stuff that if you screw up, you know, you might be messing up somebody else. And the same thing happens. So it is the intelligence business is kind of a wilderness of mirrors. You, you never really know what the true situation is and, and um a lot of times, you know, it can come back and, and hit you. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because that's an interesting turn of phrase. And I'm wondering about what she's referencing and how you approach that and attach that to your world. Because that's new to me, but it's a great turn of a phrase, wilderness of mirrors. Because we all look in the mirror in the morning and sometimes we wonder, what are we seeing? But this is a different kind of mirror. It is. I mean, that's my perspective more as an analyst you know, where we're often asked to assess a situation and we don't have all the information that we need. And so you're trying to guess at the pieces that are missing, for instance. You're trying to guess about assets that you may not be, you may not have been exposed to. It might be a little different for clandestine service members, you know, the case officers, the operations officers, the ones that have to be out in the field and they're handling assets. And, and you know, they don't know sometimes you know, you're acting on faith. You may not really know for sure whether you can trust your asset, if they're feeding you a bunch of lies, if they're really a double agent. There's always, there's a this huge degree of uncertainty that, yeah, you're right. I think most of us don't think about in the course of our daily lives. 
So I'm going to jump around and I'm leaving anything out because we want people to pick up on this book. So the next question I have for you is when you're writing, and I'll tell you where I'm going shortly, are you writing in isolation? Do you feel isolated? Well, you know, that's the funny thing about intelligence work. You are isolated. You know, I'll tell you a funny story about when I started in, in publishing. You know, I had been in intelligence at that point for oh, over 20 years, 25 years or so. And I'd been an analyst and, and I was a really good analyst, right? Being an analyst means you're trying to figure out the ground truth of something that maybe is happening halfway across the world. Right. You cannot go there physically. You can't sit, put yourself in the middle of it. You can't talk to the people who are involved. You're doing everything long distance through information that you're gathering, some open, some covert. And it really makes you think that you can figure out anything, right? That I know the truth about something that, you know. And once I got into publishing, you know, I thought I knew the publishing business because I, you know, read a lot of interviews and I'd listened to people. I'd gone and listened to authors speaking at their talks. I was in graduate school uh, for writing and but once I got in the business, I realized that it was a different reality than I had pictured. And it really opened my eyes. To get back to your question, yeah, I do pretty much work in isolation. To write books like Red Widow and Red London, I draw on my experiences, how I know the intelligence community works. Thank God, because it means I don't have to, have to do a lot of research for them as opposed to the historical horror novels, which take a ton of research. Right. But um, so I'm, I'm working in isolation, but it, it's not, I don't consciously think about myself being in isolation. So here's where I'm going. Because, you know, your characters, in a sense, speak, you speak through your characters. I believe there are two characters that feel very isolated, in a sense. Lindsay Duncan and Emily Rotenberg. Oh, yeah. And I think that captured my attention. That's why I asked you the initial question, because I think you understand isolation. And both of these characters on different sides of the issues in this book came together. But I think in their own right, they feel very, very isolated. I think that isolation is something that most people in the intelligence business feel, even if they don't necessarily acknowledge it, especially in C at CIA, which is in the human business, what we call human or human intelligence. Um, you know, you may be close to your teammates and people that you work with, but you always know in the back of your mind, you really are still kind of isolated because at any given time, I know this is going to sound terribly cynical, but it's true. They can turn against you. You, you really don't know, <laughs> you know, if, if people have your back all the time, certainly you'll have a few good friends that you know, you can trust, but you'd be surprised at how much positioning goes on. Right. So that's Lindsay's world. That's her reality. And she learns through what happens in Red Widow too, that she, you know, you really trust people at your own peril. Emily um, Rotenberg, for the people who haven't read the book yet, um, the story is really told through two points of view, and Emily is one. And she is the British wife of a Russian oligarch. 
And she's a really sad character. You know, when I thought about the situation, what would it be like to be married to an oligarch um, as Putin's, you know, upping Russian aggression around the world? And the whole, we can get talk about the whole situation, how the Brits allowed the oligarchs to really dig in the way they did in the UK has fascinated me for a long time. But um, when I thought of her situation, I, you know, thought what kind of woman would do this? You know, unless they're obviously a gold digger or something. And Emily at least tells herself that she's not a gold digger, right? She wants to believe her own reasons for why she did what she did. You know, why did I marry a bad man? because it would be morally really reprehensible if I did it just for the money. So she can't go there. And someone who lies to themselves like that, I think by necessity is going to be very lonely. So that's great. Let's take a natural break and follow up on about that, because we think we know what oligarchs are. And I posited in this country, we have American versions of that. And I find that fascinating too. So we're going to take a short break. I'm Larry Davidson, and this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson, but welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. So Alma, let's follow up on this whole world of oligarchs in London. There's a feeling that the money that they have there is kind of going back to Putin or it's going back and forth with the banks and everything else. But it's a fabulous world that we know very little about here in America. That's true. So the reason the Brits are in the situation they're in is because in 1994, I believe, you know, they were going through a horrible recession and they'd gone through a horrible recession a little bit earlier. And they were facing, uh, you know, a time that was going to look pretty bleak for them economically if they couldn't think of a way to get an infusion of money. So they, at that time, instituted a new class of visa for any foreigner who wanted to invest three quarters of a million pounds or more in the country. And this happened at the same time that this new class of Russians, the oligarchs were being created. Now the oligarchs came out of the complete lawlessness of when the Soviet Union disintegrated and was trans transferring over to a democracy. You can't see my little air quotes, but there they are. And, um, it, it, I don't know if you remember, but I was an analyst at the time. I wasn't a Russian specialist, but I, I did specialize kind of in like um, basket case countries is what we call it as the term of art. Countries that are falling apart and can't govern themselves. And Russia was there. So I was watching what was going on in the country. And it's incredibly frightening because usually a basket case country is small, you know, like Afghanistan or Sierra Leone. We rarely face a country as big and, um, you know, with as many dangerous points to it as Russia falling into the basket case um, category. And so it really was worrying what's going to happen to this country if they can't pull it out. I mean, they had huge numbers of people with AIDS because they drug use was rampant, alcoholism, all this stuff. The country was just falling apart in every measurable way. And out of this came these men who 
had who just seized as many state assets as they could to privatize them. And so they were literally like fleecing the country dry. The other thing is, I can't remember if this was ever proven, but there were certainly rumors that the KGB, seeing that the end was coming, decided to get in on this and steered some assets to certain men, knowing, you know, kind of earmarking them for down the road to use them to help control things. Um, so these are not men who brought themselves up by their bootstraps. They These were men who really had no qualms about trampling over their fellow citizens in order to get ahead because, you know, that was the kind of nobody knew what tomorrow was going to bring in Russia. So it's a little different than the oligarchs in America, I think. But you're absolutely right. We are in a time of oligarchs in America. So is there collateral damage? And, and I'm referring to real world intelligence gathering. A recent news story said the collateral damage is the spy network, Russian spy network, because what Putin did in his invasion of Ukraine is under siege and they're being exposed. And that's part of the damage that nobody anticipated or Putin didn't anticipate when he went into Ukraine and was going to be in Kiev in a day. So is there damage that nobody anticipated on both sides of the coin? And also right now the, the West is wrestling with how much aid we provide to Ukrainians and not set off the Chinese. The geopolitics of this situation, now you understand much better than I do, is way beyond my comprehension, but I wonder what you think about that. Well, you know, it's it's very interesting. So first of all, I'm not a Russian specialist. So, you know, all intelligence people will qualify when they give their opinion about something that is not really their bailiwick. You know, I consider myself very much an amateur when it comes to Russia and this part of the world. But the thing that is so striking about this is you're absolutely right. It's incredibly complex. And I think there are connections that are not even apparent to the experts until you kind of trip over them. You know, the, uh, one big question, and it was a question, it's a question that's in my book, and I think it's getting resolved now, gosh darn it, just as the book is coming out, is the whole issue of where is China going to stand on this? Because, you know, in the beginning of the invasion, they were very much neutral, right? Typical Chinese position, and I think I this did survive in the book, is they will not take a position, no, despite the morality of a situation, unless it benefits, you know, their particular policies. But now China does look like it's coming out on uh, that they're going to support Russia. That makes things a lot more complicated on the international stage. Um, although Chinese clout is, is also kind of winding down a little bit and they have to be very mindful of where they're headed, which is, you know, more of a sta uh, standoff with America uh, down the road a bit. So let's talk about spycraft that you understand. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to Lindsay because she has to go undercover under another name to get close to uh, one of the characters in the book because I don't want to have any spoiler alerts. So us who don't who watch too much television think we know everything, but we really don't. Do characters who are spies that have to go undercover, they do they have to create what's called a legend? And if that's true, what is a legend? So a legend is a persona. It's um, a whole story that gets developed 
around a character, a fake, it's like, it's making a fake characterization for yourself, right? You're going to try to pass yourself off as this other person. And in order to do that successfully, you know, you, it's got to have some depth. So you've got to create the whole picture, right? Where did this person, where were they born? Where did they grow up? Where did they go to school? What kind of people would they probably know? It can, you know, sometimes um, legends don't have to be super deep, right? You don't necessarily have to have passports made and all of the paper that um, supports something like that. In this day and age, it's less about the paper and more about a digital trail, you know, People will assume you're lying about who you are if they can't find you on Facebook or Twitter or things like that. But how robust the legend is depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Sometimes it's very light cover. You know, it's just enough to squeak you through whatever gatekeeper you're trying to get by at the time. So I'm going to go back to a television program. I was very late to this, but I binged every single season, The Americans. Oh, yeah. Did you watch it? Oh, yeah. I loved it. It was a great show. So was it just good drama or was it really had certain aspects of being true? Oh, it definitely did. I don't know if you know, but Joe Weisberg, who was one of the showrunners and the creator of the series, um, had been at CIA. He went through the clandestine training program. That's a three-year program And at the end of it, they decide and you decide if this line of work is really something you want to do. And my understanding is that Joe left at that time. So he he knew the basics, right, when he decided to do this show. The thing that I think is brilliant is he decided to set it in the past as opposed to make it a current show. Because he and I, we are both bound by the non-disclosure agreement that we will never discuss classified information publicly, the classified information that we were given access to. So he can't talk about what how spies work today but by sending it that far back in the past it's almost considered vintage right (laughs) so you can there's certain things get declassified over time so you know he didn't give away any secrets but what he showed how they really acted you know the use of terrible disguises the use of disguises and Covcom or covert communications, how they get information back and forth, the human chain for communication, you know, their handlers, the people that run um, spies, assets, and in this case, the sleeper agents, you know, all that was incredibly well done. Was it 100% accurate? No. Um, I really felt bad for the FBI. Oh, and that's the other thing. He didn't really bring CIA into it much. He used FBI, which makes sense because in our country, FBI handles domestic intelligence issues. And this would be a domestic issue, foreign agents trying to infiltrate um, into the United States. I'm Larry Davidson. We're having a conversation with the author of Red London. I'm Makatsu. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. So in terms of vetting what you write, is there a difference between vetting a, a work of fiction and vetting a book of nonfiction? And I'm thinking about the recent book by John Bolton. Uh, yes. So, um, you know, it's a lot easier with a work of fiction, really, to get it through the, the review process. So for folks who don't know, once you sign that NDA, usually it it um, obligates you. If you're going to have any body of work that's going to be released to the public, it has to go through a review process. So in my case, because the books have to do with CIA, 
and I work for CIA, it has to go through CIA's review process. If I were so foolish as to mention another agency, say NSA, which I also worked for, the CIA people might decide that NSA needs to review it too. And then my problems expand exponentially. But you know what they're looking for. There are, once you retire, all they can stop is the release of classified information. You can be critical of the agency. You can be critical of the administration. You can be critical of U.S. foreign policy. You just can't give away secrets. So, and the most important thing that you, the intelligence community tries to protect are what we call sources and methods. methods yep. And sources being, you know, like the human people who are selling secrets to the United States. Methods being the technical means by which we gather that information and the technical ways we do our job. As long as you avoid those things, you'll be okay. But in nonfiction, people aren't aren't making things up. They're trying to get to the truth. And so, you know, they by definition, kind of have to talk about things that are probably some reviewer back at an agency might think of as um, as kind of sensitive. So I'm not familiar with the John Bolton book in particular. Uh, so I don't know if I can answer questions there, but was there some things he did that uh, I actually met John Bolton a couple of times? Well, he's gotten challenged because once again, uh, President previous president wasn't comfortable with what he wrote and things like that. So he said it was vetted properly, but he's, he felt he was being challenged. And I just wonder about the whole process about what can be released and what can be challenged only about releasing information. Well, once you are subject to this obligation, you do worry about it being politicized. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I wrote some spy novels back when I was still working at uh, CIA, because you could, it just made it a little more complicated in, in some ways. But um, I was exposed to the publication review process during the Bush administration, and it ended up being politicized. Um, people probably don't remember this, but there was a CIA analyst named Mike Scheuer, who was the lead analyst on Afghanistan. And he wrote a book called Imperial Ubris, which was very critical about the Bush administration's policy on uh, Afghanistan. And there was nothing on the books that said he couldn't do that, but it was politically embarrassing for the agency. The Bush administration got very upset and they and CIA ended up changing a lot of its policies about publishing books like this in the future. And it created this, it really poisoned the atmosphere at CIA. My understanding, I was told that somebody in the Bush administration said, I don't want to see on the news, hear about one more CIA person getting a book deal. And so they clamped down. It was almost impossible to get a book through the pre-publication review for three years. So it definitely can be politicized. I think anyone who would be surprised that the former president would politicize something like that would make his own decisions after a professional expert review of a book. Anyone who's surprised by that, I don't know. Maybe there's some medication you can take. Uh, I'm not surprised. So I'm, I'm going to get in trouble, and you can not answer. But what troubles me is how politicized the Secret Service has become. And I wonder if you can extrapolate from that about the FBI. I can go into James Kallstrom, the head of the FBI agency in New York City. 
you can make a case that he was not a fan of Hillary Clinton, and a lot of information went from him to Mayor Giuliani, and it was used. So I'm wondering if you go through all the agencies, what are the dangers of them being too politicized and kind of having their opinions show up in real-world decisions? Well, you know, so I've been out of, I retired from government service in 2017. And uh, so I think things have changed a lot. And uh, a lot of that has to do with that former administration. When I was in service, um, I, I would say that it, we were, it was really impressed upon you as part of the culture that you would be neutral. You did not carry your personal political views into the workplace. The other thing is intelligence is about foreign information, what's going on in foreign countries and how it might affect the United States. And a lot of us were very neutral politically. I, I'm, I was never into domestic politics very much at all. And I think that was very common among people in intelligence. And it wasn't until the former administration politicized everything that those people who I think felt involved, you know, who, who had a tendency to be more outspoken about domestic politics felt emboldened to suddenly carry it into the workplace. I don't know the Secret Service per se and had limited experience with FBI, so it's hard to say, but um, because I do think those two institutions have become quite politicized. Uh, you know, I did work in at NSA, which is a part of the Defense Department, and uh, I, I'm sad to say, because I finished out my career at NSA, I'm sad to say I was seeing that happen there towards the end. I think CIA is probably a little better than most about still remaining neutral. So I believe books should be read more than once. Read it, put it down, and come back to it together. Because certain points in our life, we're more amenable to understanding what's going on. And the reason why I say that is... Because this book has got a lot going on and the pace picks up at the end and we get, we get drawn in. But I think between the lines, maybe not between the lines, you're raising a very important issue that we have to think about today. And that's allowing wealthy individuals to create their own state-level intelligence gathering agencies and bypassing other mechanisms of getting information and almost being in competition with the FBI, the CIA, NSA. And I believe that could be a very big problem. If you have not enough money, you will get the information. Yeah, the intelligence community is actually starting to look at it the last couple of years because it's it just so happened it coincided with when I was retiring. And so I was looking for um, you know, you got the clearance, you got the experience, you think uh, maybe I should keep a toe in this for a while, right? I mean, books are nice, but they're not going to make you rich, that's for sure. And so um, I was interviewing around with especially big tech companies, because like I said, I'm a tech futurist. And I was kind of shocked by what I saw, how many, uh, you know, a lot of the big tech companies, like especially the social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, really kept the intelligence community at arm's length. Right. They didn't want oversight. And I think they were afraid of the intelligence community figuring out some of the some of their policies and operating uh, procedures. And so uh, they always had kept us at arm's length. 
And now here they were starting to hire intelligence people. And I thought that's pretty weird. So the more I looked into it, the more I saw that this was a big trend. And now I think people will do kind of agree with it. Um, you know, we're kind of in this golden age of private intelligence where individuals, companies, foreign governments are hiring away intelligence professionals. The thing is, is that when you are working on behalf of your government, you are operating under mandates that you no longer have when you're a private citizen, right. even if you're a private investigator, et cetera, et cetera. But what we were finding when I looked at some of these cases, I actually looked at court papers <laughs> on some of these cases of where former intelligence people had overstepped the bounds and actually did illegal things. And is it because they didn't know they were just they're being hired to do things that they did for the government. And when you work for a private corporation, they don't always care sometimes, right, that you're overstepping the lines, especially companies and individuals who've been told that they're above the law, basically. So uh, your your readers, I mean, your listeners may be familiar with the case that happened a few years ago with some NSA, uh, former NSA employees who were hired by, uh, through a cutout, hired by the United Arab Emirates right. to create an intelligence program for them. And that really opened up a lot of eyes. So I'm a news junkie. I read, a lot, I read too many newspapers and I, I pretty much these days watch MSNBC. So I've seen David Ignatius a lot on that. He, I think it was an op-ed piece recently in the Washington Post, and I think it goes like this. Sometimes there's stories about spies who aren't there. Sometimes old spies just want an audience. I can, I can think of two men who are in the news a lot and have been attacked um, for their views, John Brennan and James Clapper. So what is David Ignatius addressing with this piece in the Washington Post? Well, you know, I, I have to apologize. I haven't read that, I don't think. So I'm not exactly sure why he's going. He's talking about Brennan and Clapper there. But Brennan um, and Clapper are, are me. But he's, the thing is, he's talking about old spies just need an audience. And, and, sure. you're, and you're an old, kind of sense you're kind of an old a spy, an older spy. I'm an old spy. I'm an old spy. I started so long ago. I started with technologies that should be in museums, right? I mean, I... I I don't mind at all. It's nice having the perspective. So one of the things um, he when that, he wrote that, I heard about it in another context, and that is there's a former spy by the name of Robert Baer who writes a lot of books. Yeah, I know, I know who he is. Yeah. I'm sorry? I know who he is, so continue. Mm -hmm. So he had a book recently where he actually accused somebody that he had known, not very well, but he had known at CIA of being the fourth man in the Aldridge Ames case and um, who was not, had never been unmasked. And uh, a lot of people came, uh, intelligence professionals came out and said that Bob Bear was 100% wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. And I think Ignatius also, his his op-ed had something to do with that, that he kind of joined the fray. And I tell this to people all the time before I started writing spy novels, I talked to these, you know, um, journalists who wanted to write a spy novel when they found out about me, 
they would, you know, come up and, you know, try to get information from me. And a lot of them uh, cut their teeth when uh, the Iraq war kicked off and and, uh, uh, and our, our uh, assault against Afghanistan kicked off. You know, these newspapers were setting over embedded journalists. And so this for a lot of these guys, this was the first time they'd ever been around spies, right? Been around intelligence professionals, the CIA guys. And I'll tell you, those guys like to talk, but they don't always tell you the truth. They love to spin people up. All right. They just see how far they can push them and all this stuff. So these journalists who were writing novels would tell me the things that the CIA guys told them. I said, you cannot believe everything they tell you. So Bob Bear might have been told something that wasn't necessarily true, and he didn't do the the do research, at least that's what it sounds like from everything I've read about it. And I think Ignatius was warning about that, too. All right. So the news cycle goes very quickly. It's almost it's not even a 24 hour news cycle. It can be hour to hour to hour with, with all these broadcast outlets and, and on C-SPAN and all these other places on Fox News. So the news cycle was for a short, well, a very short period of time was the spy balloon that we shot down. Is it true in the history of this country, going back to 1945, there was a Japanese bomb balloon that exploded over the United States of America with casualties. There was. This actually has to do, I know about this, well, because I knew as a kid, I heard about these, the balloons, the fire balloons. But it has, I wrote a book about the Japanese internment, um, you know, again, historical horror. So it's fiction, but it also talks about the fire balloons. So what happened, I mean, I could talk about this for a long time. I actually did in a talk I did for the fervor. Well, here's what, here's what, I'm going to throw this out there because I really wanted to talk about the book and I really want to talk about this series that was on AMC. So if you want to come back again, I want to follow up on that, on your pre- previous books because they fascinate me. So if you don't mind, we will come back to you again because I really want to spend some time just about that because the fervor fascinates me and I want to get into oh. that too for another conversation if that's okay. That'd be great. That'd be great. But anyway, yeah, there absolutely were these huge balloons made out of rice paper and i'm talking huge they were 30 feet in diameter and they had these very rudimentary incendiary contraptions underneath they were incredibly primitive when you think about it they the, japan sent 2000 balloons to the united states there were actually 245 instances of them landing, there was only one instance that resulted in loss of life. And my novel actually opens with, with that true story. So what we like to do is I launch over to gets another book I want to refer to. We always end every segment with thinking about what I did wrong and what I did right. So what did I get wrong and or what did I miss? There's so much territory to cover here. But Alma, what did I get wrong and what did I miss in terms of our conversation and the great book that you've written, Red London? Well, it's very kind of you. I don't think you got anything wrong or that you necessarily missed anything. There's a lot of ground to cover. Like you said, the book does, um, it has a couple main things. One is about the oligarchs and the dangers that the oligarchs posed. Um, and the other thing was about private intelligence, which is something that, um, you know, as a tool for somebody like an oligarch, and like you said, we have American oligarchs. Yes, we do. Uh, it can be a very dangerous tool, and Americans maybe want to be thinking about it. And as always, the book also talks about, though, you know, what is it like to work at CIA? 
you know, there's, it's thrilling and fascinating and, you know, glamorous, it seems glamorous, but, you know, it really demands a lot of the people who hold those jobs that people aren't really even aware of. And it's, it doesn't always reward those people. Sometimes it kind of chews them up and spits them out at the other end. And that comes up in Red London. And there's a character who ends up going over to work in a private intelligence because uh, the agency just didn't recognize her potential and didn't reward her. And it's these people who are who are actually great workers. It's just the system can't reward everybody uh, in the way they probably need to be rewarded. So we're training these people and then we're almost giving them the incentive to leave us to go work for Google or, you know, a Saudi prince or something like that. And it's just something we really need to think about. Well, I got to tell you, you gave my audience and myself a lot to think about. The book is called Red London. My guest is Alma Katsu. I'm going to hold you this. I want you to come back to talk about the fervor because AMC did a great series called The Terror. I saw that, yeah. Very well done. So if you don't mind, when you get through the book tour and promotion, we'll come back to you because I'd love to further follow up more about your books, your horror genre slash supernatural genre, because I think they're fascinating books, and I want to talk more about that too. I'd love to. Thank you very much. I'm Larry Davidson. I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Well, I want to thank Alma Katsu so much for spending so much time with us talking about our new book, Red London. On previous episodes, we like this topic. Let me recommend Craig Unger's book, Joseph Cannon's book, and Paul Vittich's book's they're all on the runway or they're already in on our website for the Artful Periscope podcast. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisofaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. To her kitchen chair, she brought